Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Danya Akkad. Danya is a senior editor and investigative journalist at Middle East Eye. Recently, she's been examining the issue of domestic abuse and male guardianship in the Gulf state of Qatar, a country known to many people only as the site of the 2022 FIFA World Cup. Danya, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Bill. Thanks for having me. Now, look, uh, first of all, can you tell our listeners what Mahram male guardianship is, how it works, and if it takes its guidance from the Quran, or is it a cultural practice? Yeah, of course, of course. So <clears throat> a Mahram is a male relative. So a male relative who a, a woman would not be, it wouldn't be acceptable for her to marry. So it'd be like a father, a brother, an uncle, your grandfather. Um, and, and under these guardianship laws, and the, the elements of these laws which exist across the Middle East, but are, are really predominant in Gulf countries, this mahram uh, has the legal authority over a girl or a woman. So they can basically, um, it, it depends on the country, it depends on, um, on the family. For example, in Qatar, uh, a mahram might, would be able to tell a woman, um, under 25, you're not allowed to travel or leave the country without my permission. So this person has authority. And, and again, the rules really vary across countries. And, you know, some, some Islamic legal scholars cite certain verses of the Quran to support its practice, but many others are, reject these findings as misinterpretations. So it's really my sense from my reporting that actually, uh, you know, while religious rhetoric is used to justify them, it's much more the case that guardianship rules are cultural and part of part of tradition. And I think it's really also important to say that they're really powerful political tools. So, you know, um, regardless of kind of where they're coming from, whether they're religious or cultural or traditional, they're used politically. So they can subordinate half your population, but they also are useful for, for leaders who want to keep subjects happy, who want to kind of uh, leave the domestic sphere to, to families and, and let them get on with their business without um, shining the light of the state on them. So broadly, these rules are just really discriminatory, and they leave women across the Middle East as second-class citizens. Well, that's interesting, uh, Danya. You make the point that uh, some of the religious authorities will quote the Quran to justify it. But uh, by and large, I, I suppose certainly among the younger generation, it's seen much more as a, as a cultural practice and a way of, of keeping women subservient. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the women I spoke to um, for this story, the women in Qatar, um, really talked a lot about it more like a... Um, almost like a big brother society situation where everyone kind of felt this pressure to keep up appearances and to keep up this tradition of, of um, men having power over, over women in their, in their uh, family and in their community. So it's almost like uh, I talked to some women whose, whose parents, whose dads maybe were actually not that into um, some, of, some of the aspects of this, but felt compelled to continue because they saw other men in, the, in their community carrying on with it. So yeah, it's very much um, a tradition, I would say, in, in Qatar. Interesting, too, that idea of, of peer pressure that, that fathers who may be inclined to be more liberal feel that they can't do it because then they would be considered to be what uh, 
too liberal. Exactly. Yeah, I was surprised by that. But, you know, in hindsight, actually it makes a lot of sense. But yeah, um, one woman was talking about how uh, her dad was really quite liberal and, and had even uh, taken her to a job interview, whereas other women in Qatar, for example, might need their dad's permission to take a job or even to go to that job interview. Her dad had taken her to the job interview, but then he was so liberal, you know, between them. But then she started uh, posting things on social media and he was sort of saying, saying to her, tone it down, tone it down, almost in this way, like, I'm going to have to sort of justify your behavior at some point. So maybe just let's keep it between us. It was that kind of thing. And how did she respond to that? That must have been frustrating for her. Um, You know, she, like a lot of these women, she sort of accepted this reality. She's playing the game within it. And so... You know, I think she's definitely frustrated, but she has a lot more freedoms than a lot of her um, fellow women in, in Qatar. So I think she sort of goes along with it and kind of keeps fighting it in her own way. So she was frustrated, but it's almost like she's got her head down and she's just rolling with things. Mm. You know, I, I think many of our listeners may be surprised to hear that Qatar which projects this image of an ultra-modern state with events like the World Cup uh, coming up in November, that it still has male guardianship in place and didn't give women the right to drive until 2020, which is three years after Saudi Arabia. So is the government dragging its feet on dealing with Mahram, this practice that subordinates women and doesn't treat them as equals? Yeah, you know, um, I, I'm not surprised a lot of people don't know about the guardianship rules in Qatar. I, I'm really embarrassed to say that actually I didn't really know until No Feldmadid's case kind of came into the headlines um, uh, late last year. This, uh, this is a young woman that uh, came to the UK and then has subsequently gone back to uh, Doha. We'll, we, we'll talk about her later, but but uh, but please carry on. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, and you know, her case, I, I heard bits and pieces of it. I saw headlines about her and I thought, wait a minute, why why did this Qatari woman um, come to the UK? And I sort of assumed when I looked into it that there would be some sort of very specific family reason, something going on that motivated her to flee. But then what I actually found out in looking into it was this whole system of, of male guardianship uh, rules in Qatar that are really quite quite restrictive. I mean, really restrictive. And you, you bring the comparison with Saudi Arabia, and that is really interesting because, yes, Qatar was behind Saudi Arabia in allowing women the right to drive. And as I understand it, a lot of Qatari women, when, when Saudi women, when the driving ban was lifted, a lot of Qatari women went on social media and said, wait a minute, we're behind Saudi Arabia? What the heck? But to your question, um, the women that I spoke to, all of them would agree that Qatar is dragging its heels when it comes to reforms around these rules. And why is that? Because you, we do have this sense of a very, so, you know, with, within the construct of Gulf ruling families, a, a quite a liberal ruling family. Yeah, so my sense from, from reporting this story was that the Qatari royal family is in a bit, of a, um, a bit of a bind when it comes to these rules because it's using them to keep, keep its legitimacy. It's, 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 a, it's a way that it can keep its subjects happy. So if it doesn't touch the domestic sphere, so it doesn't bother families, it lets them get on with their business, turns the other, other way, doesn't look at it, and lets people get on with it, it can keep the support of its subjects. So 
there's pressure, you know, particularly from from tr- really traditional parts of the Qatari society to keep these rules in place. And so the ruling family is in a position where, on the one hand, it's got these traditional um, subjects that it, it wants to keep happy. But then it's got this uh, increasingly vocal um, group of young women on social media demanding, um, demanding change. And I think the Qatari ruling family, while it has the, uh, you know, there's a perception that's quite liberal, I think it's um, another quality about it is that it's very, operates very much under the radar. It doesn't want to seem to be pressured by the West or by any sort of party. It wants to, it wants to seem that it's uh, in charge of its own decisions and that it makes them by itself. It's not being pushed around, right? So I think the ruling family is in quite a bind. And that's why there are some reforms in this sphere, but they're quite, they're quite um, piecemeal and they're not really announced boldly. So with Saudi Arabia, you saw the, the driving ban being lifted. That was announced from Washington and from Riyadh simultaneously. So the audience was clearly uh, the West, right? But with Qatar, when they, when they did that with the driving ban, it was very, very soft rollout. I mean, it, was, it was, uh, wasn't even reported in the Qatari media, the state-run media. And, uh, you know, just not much fanfare around it. Mm, that's interesting. Interesting. It wasn't even reported in the media. And, and you make a very good point that that when Mohammed bin Salman announced that women could drive, it was very much uh, broadcast far and wide. And of course, at the same time, he jailed those uh, uh, women who had been agitating for not just the right to drive, but other other rights um, for women. But look, you know, I'm sure you've come across this. I have, particularly in the Gulf uh, women that I've met who support male guardianship, who say, this is our way of doing things. Um, you in the West don't understand, so so butt out. <laughs> These are women saying this, you know, not, not, not just men. How do you respond to that sort of, uh, you know, criticism? Yeah, you know, I think it's an absolutely fair position, and I'm really, I'm really sympathetic to it. I think, I think the West has done and really continues to do a lot of damage in the region by butting in. And, you know, this actually came up in some of the interviews I had with Qatari women. One was telling me about her cousin who, and she was saying, well, my cousin really likes this situation. She likes being under her father's control. It's a traditional way that works for her. And and then she sort of paused and said, but but the thing is, uh, we need to just have a choice. She said, it's fine if people want to have this traditional way of being, but but I want to be able to choose. So really sensitive to that, you know, really appreciate that point of view. But I think there's also the point of view of, of those who, who aren't interested in that way and um, want to have more rights. And I just wanted to add just, just on this, something really interesting that came up uh, repeatedly in these interviews was patriotism. And that kind of, I don't know, I don't know why that surprised me, but it did. A lot of these women said they really loved Qatar and they were actually criticizing the guardianship rules in the spirit of wanting their country to be better. So they thought they, they didn't want to, they, some of them were actually really worried to speak with me because they were worried I was just going to slam Qatar and um, not really get into the nuance of how they felt. And I think that's really interesting. There's a lot of nuance here. There's a, there's a sense of protecting one's own country and then frustrations with, with things that aren't changing enough. So a lot of, a lot of angles here. Mm, yeah. And there's also, Danya, uh, a very dark side to this story um, that, that you explore in the article. It can enable domestic abuse. It can encourage even honor killings. 
How serious do you think the problem is of domestic abuse in, in Qatar? Yeah, what's what's really scary is that I think it's really hard to know exactly how serious the problem is because um, it's not really discussed publicly, it's not really covered by the local media, and there's not a transparent picture or figures showing how big the problem is. But anecdotally, every woman I spoke to for this piece talked about domestic abuse and their concerns around it. Several of them had actually been abused, and, and that led them to want to escape the country. Uh, one was a therapist who said that all of her clients come frustrated in some way, shape or form with being restricted by men. And among those are women who are abused by by their their husbands or their or their family members. One one woman who wasn't abused said that um, while she's kind of all right in the system, it's, it's the abused women that she worries about. And it's kind of it's a little bit scary. There's a there's a state run organization for women in Qatar, but. The, the lodging that's provided for those that are trying to flee abuse. It's not long-term. So there's not really a place there for women to stay for very long. So then the women um, also turn to hospitals for shelter and um, they can't stay there forever as well. Some women, anecdotally, I've heard that women who've gone to the police or to authorities, those authorities have been known to call up their guardians to come and get them, so putting them into even more danger. So you kind of start to see how somebody being abused really uh, might end up fleeing the country because they don't have um, a safe a safe situation to to go to. Or um, I know that suicide and and uh, suicide attempts are also prevalent in the country. Um, but again, it's really hard to say how how many uh, the the numbers on this. It's hard to to quantify. What is clear, I think, is that the state hasn't put in place the necessary pieces to provide a true safety net for women who are being abused. And importantly, everyone knows that fact. So there's this sort of environment of, of enabling. Yeah, and we're talking about uh, a country with a very small indigenous population. It's got a very large uh, migrant population. That's a whole other issue about how Qatar deals with migrants. But, but within Qatar itself, I mean, there's what, 300,000 Qataris? It's a small world, isn't it? Right, exa- exactly. It's very small. And w- one, one bit that I got from some of the women was just that everyone sort of knows everyone's business. So you might even know that someone's kind of not in a good place, but there's not a whole lot um, that can be done. So it's that also, I think, keeps that enabling environment going because... You don't want to bring shame to your family. You don't want to embarrass your family because everyone will know about it. So it's, yeah, I think it's really important to note that it's so small because it does create sort of a, a certain kind of atmosphere. And as you say, the, the women have very few places to go to to get away. And even if they do get away, in some instances, the, the very person who's abused them is called to come and take them back again. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's uh it's surprising to hear this going on in the 21st century, but yeah, it's happening. And what about honor killings? Because we've done uh, some work with Alanoud al Sharik uh, in, in Kuwait. The, the law is still very lenient on the issue of honor killings. There's been some horrific uh, murders there of young women. What is the situation in Qatar? Yeah, I I um I talked to Rathna Begum at, at Human Rights Watch about this because it came up several times in the conversations I had with Qatari women. You know, they sort of implied that honor killings were going on and I would, you know, 
sort of say, well, do you, do you actually know someone who's been killed or do you know a specific case? And I could never really get a whole lot of detail around it. There was just this sort of speculation or feeling that it was happening, almost like, you know, Chinese whispers. I've heard it from this person who heard it from this person. So I went to Rathna to say, hey, what's what's going on here? Do you know do you know the actual facts? She's she's done so much work on Qatar and these guardianship rules. And she was saying sort of similar to domestic the domestic violence situation, it's really hard to know. There aren't there aren't figures on this. There's just what you can find reported in social media or or in the local media. So there are at least two um killings of women by male relatives in the past couple of years that made it into the news. So I know you know we can say there are at least two that have happened in Qatar, but it's a mystery, really, and it, and it, it is something that needs light shed on it. And and the two that were killed, what, what are the details? Um, so one of them was a Qatari woman who had married, I believe, a um, a famous boxer, and her family was upset that they had married, and I think reportedly shot shot them. I, I'd have to go back and take a look, but they they were the family was upset about the marriage, and then the other case was a, I believe, a Yemeni woman who had married a Qatari man and then was going to court to demand custody of their child, I believe, and was was shot in front of the courthouse. Mm, okay. Now, you mentioned uh, Nuf al-Madid, who made headlines in late 2019 when she fled Qatar, as, as, as you said. She gained asylum in the UK then returned to Qatar and is now apparently happy with her situation. What does our story tell us about this whole issue of Mahram? Yeah, I think I think Nov's story is is really, really, really remarkable. Um, she she said she'd been abused by her family for years, and even at times, you know, was worried that she was going to be killed. And so, in in November twenty nineteen. I, just, I love this story. While her dad was sleeping, she she got his phone and she tapped into the uh, the app that allowed um, would normally allow him to give her approval to exit the country because he's her guardian. And she gave herself approval to leave the country and took an Uber to the airport and flew to the Ukraine and then ended up in the UK where she sought asylum. And you know, I think I think she was nineteen at the time. She was really young and. From the UK, um, while she was waiting on her asylum claim, she was helping uh, other women figure out how to do what she'd done on social media. And I just think I just think what she did was so brave. And it really tells us how desperate the guardianship rules are making girls and women. I just I don't know. I just it's she, she picked up and moved to a completely different country. And and I think just knowing Qatari society, I mean, she's she's become social anathema after what she's done. She's, uh, from what I've heard from the women I talked to, you know, their parents are saying to them, please don't be like Nof. Don't do what Nof did. She's really, you know, by going public, she 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 really uh, sacrificed her reputation and, and went for it. And there are, there are others like her, you know, there's a, a woman named Aisha El-Katani, who's another Qatari woman who went public after fleeing um, soon after Nof. And, I think it's just also really important to remember that there are so many women from from Gulf countries who have fled in recent years. I just we we forget because they sort of they make the headlines, uh, you know, when they're trapped, say, maybe in the Bangkok airport or in a detention center in Macedonia or something. And then they just kind of drop from the headlines. So we don't really get a cumulative 
picture ever of how many women really are fleeing. But, the, you know, they're they're going from every country. We've got, you know, I, I don't know if you remember like Maha and Wafa el-Subai, the two sisters who fled to Georgia, or, you know, obviously there's Princess Latifa and Princess Haya. And there was the Emirati woman, Hend al-Baluki, who was in Macedonia and then somehow ended up back in the UAE. And I'm not really sure what happened to her. Dina al-Ali Laslum, Saudi. We don't, we don't know what happened to her after she fled and then, and then went back. So, you know, these stories make the headlines when the women flee. But we, I think it's important that, to remember that these stories tell us how desperate they are. And... Um, also, really important to remember that there are lots of other women who flee that don't go public, that we don't know about. So I think no story is just, um, it's a canary in a coal mine type warning sign uh, about the environment that these women are living in. Yeah, of course, you mentioned the, all of these women and the Princess Latifa, and, and also Nuf. I mean, she then she disappears for several months. People are concerned, has she possibly been killed? But then she pops up and says, no, look, basically, I'm okay, and then disappears again. And Princess Latifa, rather a similar sort of thing, this huge outcry. And then, and then now uh, we, we see her saying, no, basically, I'm okay. I mean, what do you make of that? Yeah, um... It's hard to know. I did. I didn't talk to her for this story, and I and I kind of purposely sort of kept my distance because I I sensed that um, having gone back to the country, she might be in a bit of a she's finding her feet probably in a in a bit of a, a strange situation. I my sense would be that she's keeping a low profile because um, she doesn't want to I don't know make attract too much attention to her situation. She wants to just get on with her life. And um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly what motivated her to go back. And I don't know sort of the circumstances under which she's living her life now. But I do know that she started going to university again. And one of the women pointed out that, you know, she's very publicly said, oh, I'm back at, I think it's Carnegie Mellon. Um, so it's, you know, it's really easy. It would be really easy for one of her family members to turn up there and give her a hard time. Um, and yet she's gone public with it. So she must feel some sense of protection. So I would assume she's, she's protected in some way by the state and maybe needs to kind of keep a low profile to make sure she stays safe. But I don't, this is all speculation on my part. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I mean, as you said, there's this sort of uh, sense of shame, perhaps, and and it, for the uh, Qatari authorities, it was presumably hugely embarrassing. So it is possible that they have made it clear to the family, look, she she needs to get on with her life, and you need to leave her alone. And the quid pro quo on that is that uh, she does not uh, go public again, you know, with uh, her unhappiness. Um, but look, I wanted to move on to. Lena El-Hathlul, who has campaigned so hard on behalf of her sister, Lujain. And we, we, we mentioned that uh, Lujain was, of course, arrested, uh, tortured in prison. She was finally released uh, only last year. But, you know, what Lena said to me was, look, you know, uh, the, the Saudi authorities make the claim that they were freeing things up for women. But she says nothing has actually changed. It's all coming from the top down. They give with one hand and they take away with another. She said MBS gets praise in the West for doing all these wonderful things for women. And he's also getting praise, let's face it, from Saudi women because he's opening up jobs for them. Um, 
you know, it's a bit of a conundrum, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a complete conundrum. And I I, I listened to the the episode you had with Lena. It was a great. It's great. Um, and yeah, you can't deny you can't deny that. Yeah, Saudi Arabia has introduced lots of reforms that have been positive for women in recent years. You know, the the driving ban's been lifted. Travel ban's been lifted. Women can live by themselves um, without male guardianship permission. Groups of women can go do Hajj together, although they can't go by themselves. But then you have to ask, how free are women like Lujane um, and other political activists, male and female, how able are they to speak out about more changes that they want? And why, you know, why is Lujane still banned from leaving the country? And why were she and other women who risked so much to get the driving ban lifted arrested just before he, you know MBS lifted the driving ban? It doesn't doesn't actually really kind of make sense if if those changes are being made because they're genuinely wanted by by MBS and, and others in the royal family. And you also have to ask how many of these reforms are reversible, and are they really a reflection of a change of mind right at the top or are they just kind of a, a different strategy to consolidate political power? And I, I, I obviously I think they're a bit of the latter and I think they're sort of easy changes to make um, without having to go too deep. And it plays to the West, doesn't it? Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. Again, it's, it's the audience I would think is the West. It's, it's, I would think that the motivation is really to attract investment um, and to sort of clean up clean up the uh, Saudi reputation a little bit after Jamal Khashoggi's brutal murder and on the other dissidents who have been chased down around globally. So yeah, it's kind of a bit of a cleanup job, but not a deep reform. Mm. Well, look, finally, Danya, in these authoritarian regimes where rights for women are given as a privilege. Uh, ones that can be as easily taken away as granted. How do you see women moving forward to secure genuine equality? I think that's a really hard question. And I and I asked I asked a lot of the Qatari women I spoke to. You know, what happens next? Are you guys ever gonna? Is this ever gonna go off social media and go onto the street? And how how does this work if you're not able to organize? Or even have, you know, you don't have an, an organization for women in Qatar where you can push for these things or lobby. And I didn't really get much of a clear answer from the women, I think maybe because there's not a lot of clarity right now about the way forward exactly. But I do think social media has been a really powerful tool for these activists to get, get their stories out, get their voices out. It's not necessarily a, a, a foolproof um, strategy for them. In Qatar, they get called in sometimes for posting things and um, get into trouble. But I, I do think that social media will be one way that the women keep pushing forward. I also thought it was really interesting that uh, some of the women said that if Nof El-Madid had in fact been murdered by her family, that they would have gone to the streets and that they were you know, starting to talk about what they would do. And I genuinely think they really would have done it. They they sounded pretty pretty adamant about it. And I I think that is one other interesting point. You know what what might happen that we don't anticipate? What event might happen that would spur women and and their allies to take to the streets? And uh, yeah, I I think it would be interesting to watch for unexpected consequences, positive ones for women in the region going forward. Well, you know there is that very strong determination, uh, particularly among uh, young women, to move things forward, to get to points where 
equality is not a right that's given but it's something that they have secured on their own terms and i suppose as you say we just need to watch that story but but uh, thank you so much for for raising it in particularly in terms of qatar because as you said it it, it came as a as a bit of a shock to me and i'm sure to to many of our listeners that uh, that the situation in mahram there is is still very hard on women yeah well thank thank you bill thanks for for shining your light on it i really appreciate talking with you You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Danya Akkad, a senior editor at Middle East Eye. We welcome your comments. In addition to our podcasts, which I am pleased to say have a rapidly growing global audience and are available on several platforms, including Amazon Music, the Arab Digest daily newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.